you may already be starting to think within your own minds, I sure wish Mike would move on. We've heard enough about this disease. We've heard enough about what's going on in the brotherhood. But I want to remind you of what Paul said. He said for three years, for three years, he ceased not to warn them night and day, even with tears, of what was going to happen to the Lord's church. I can only imagine what Paul would be doing at this present time if he were alive right now, as he would see what we see, things that are happening to the church that is ripping it asunder. The things that I have to say and will say for the next few weeks will be very pertinent to the situation in which we're having to deal with in our time, which is affecting other congregations more than this congregation, but, but we are also uh, seeing the effects of it as well. And so it's very important that we understand and hear messages like, I plan to continue to preach for a little while. And so, if you will, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Peter 3, verse 16. The title of the message this morning, and this will be part one. We'll have a part two tonight, Lord willing. The title is simply, Risking Scriptures to Their Own Destruction. Risking Scriptures to Their Own Destruction. Lesson text, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Here Peter writes, As also in all his epistles, talking about Paul's epistles, speaking in them of things in which are sometimes hard to be understood. You know, when I read that, it kind of gave me some comfort. Because if an aspired apostle, that is Peter, said when talking about some of Paul's writings, some of them are hard to be understood, well, then I know I'm in good company because I would agree wholeheartedly. Several years ago when I was in preaching school, I was talking to Brother Cates about this idea of meat and milk passages and, and, some pa and, and someone said there's no such thing. And as I was mentioning that to Brother Cates, I was thinking the book of Revelation. And the first thing he, that came to his mind was the book of Romans. Oh, there's so much false doctrine taught out of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is not a very simple book to understand. And so Paul did write some things that were hard to be understood. But then he goes on to say, which they that are unlearned and unstable risk, rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. You know, Paul by inspiration spoke and taught on some of the very same subjects as did Peter. They both preached the same gospel. You remember the Bible teaches that Paul persecuted the same uh, faith which he later defended. And so some of the, just a few of the subjects that they both taught on was the judgment, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 through 9, the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, is known as the resurrection chapter of the Bible that Paul wrote. Also, he wrote on heaven, 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 10, and the end of the world, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 through 28. Some of those things that he wrote are a little bit hard to be understood. And so we have to study and work and study uh, to be able to understand the things that he wrote. Just because they are hard to understand does not mean they cannot be understood because they can with much study. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Peter said there were some things that he wrote that was somewhat hard to understand. Talking about those meat and milk passages, one that I would use very quickly is Hebrews 5, verse 12 through 14. I believe that it teaches there are some passages that are easier to understand. There are others that are more difficult. The writer says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, he's rebuking Christians for not growing to the point of being able to teach the Word of God, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful, look at this, in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Just like a little baby starts out with milk and then has to grow and mature to the point that that child can eat meat and uh, more solid foods. Again, Peter refers to that in 1 Peter chapter 2, 2, when he says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. When a person first becomes a Christian, a new convert, that new convert is fed the, the fundamentals of the faith, the basics, the, the more simple things that are found in God's Word. And as that convert grows and matures, then that person is able to understand some things that are a little bit more meatier or deeper, a little more difficult and hard to understand. And so, yes, indeed, he did write some things that were difficult to be understood. But then Peter warns about what the unlearned and unstable will do. Now, the American Standard Version says the ignorant and unsteadfast. And the New King James says the untaught and unstable. And so Peter is talking about those that are unlearned, they're unstable, they're ignorant in the Word of God, they're untaught. Some have been taught they're just unstable. Others just do not have the knowledge. So, so people have to be careful when studying the Word of God that they do not commit the fatal error of resting, resting the Scripture. To rest the Scripture, according to Strong's, means to wrench or to torture, to pervert. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, the New King James uses the word twist. That makes perfect sense to me, to twist the Scripture, to twist them out of shape, to make them say things that they do not really say, things they were not intended to say in the first place. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. That's what he's talking about, corrupting it, changing it, adding to it, taking away from it. Making, taking it out of its context, making it say things that the Holy Spirit didn't intend for it to say. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul wrote, But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, 
not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. There are many today that are handling the word of God deceitfully, some on purpose, some not so much on purpose. Some people are just teaching what they've been taught or saying what they have heard and haven't really studied it for themselves. And in that area, we all need to be extremely careful that we be like those noble Bereans who search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And so don't repeat something that you hear until you have put it in uh, beside God's word to make sure that it lines up and that it is indeed truth. Now notice, Peter goes on to say, they rest to their own destruction. Again, the New King James says, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. We are not allowed to twist the Word of God. We are not allowed to decide what we want to believe and then go into the Scriptures and try to make them say what we already believe. Anytime someone goes to the Bible with his or her mind already made up on a certain teaching or doctrine or belief, and they go to the Scripture, they are in danger of trying to take difficult passages in the Bible and twisting them to make them say what they want them to say, to justify the things that they are saying or the things that they are practicing. And in many cases, they are trying to get the scriptures to justify something that a family member is doing. Listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again. When people start out saying, well, I have restudied the subject and you better listen carefully. Several years ago, there was a somewhat sound gospel preacher that was preaching the gospel for many years. And his son decided that he wanted to let his hair grow out to be very long so he could be popular and he'd fit in with everyone else. Well, the preacher stood before the congregation after having prayed over the matter and having restudied the scripture on the matter and decided that he was wrong all along and that it was not a shame for a man to have long hair. Listen, when someone starts teaching something that is false doctrine, when they have once believed and defended the truth, just look around. Notice what either that person is doing in his life or notice what's going on in his family, but look somewhere close by and you'll see something that's going on and you'll understand why this person has twisted the Scripture to justify someone that he loves. You see... We've got to be careful because we can twist it for someone else or for ourselves to our own destruction. I want you to notice what Vine says in his Greek dictionary on this subject. He says, those who twist the scriptures to fit their own doctrines and purposes do so at their own peril. They bring destruction upon their own souls. They would bring condemnation to themselves. They would be cast away from God in judgment. Certainly, we don't want that to be true of any of us. And so, when it comes to handling the Word of God, we need to make sure that we do not handle it deceitfully. 
We need to make sure that we rightly divide the Word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15, and we teach it the way God intended. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, you recall that Paul wrote, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would, here it is, pervert the gospel of Christ. What were they doing? They were combining Judaism with Christianity. And they were leading many people astray. In order to do that, you must rest the scriptures. Because God does not combine the two. And then he goes on to say, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. That still stands for us today. Those that follow the unlearned and unstable will also lose their souls. You see, there are a lot of preachers at this time, there are several elders, elderships at this time, who have... Uh, rested the scriptures to justify something they're doing and now the memberships are following them because well that's the eldership we're told to obey them listen we are told and commanded to obey the eldership as long as it is obeying God we defend them wholeheartedly as long as they are following the teachings of the New Testament of Jesus Christ but when they stray away they're no better than anyone else, and they must be reproved and rebuked and won back to Christ. Now, if we follow them, we're going to have to answer for it. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, when you keep reading our text, you go a little bit further. He says, Ye therefore, yea, therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. You see, we have a personal responsibility to God. We have a personal responsibility to study the Bible for ourselves, to make sure that we know the truth, that we're being taught the truth, and that we are following only those who are in line with God's word. It's not so much about who it is. It's not about the name of the person. Listen, we are to follow truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Your mom and dad can be on the wrong side of, this, of an issue. You still have to stand with God. So where we stand should not be determined by who's where. But we need to stay with God at all times. Now, there are three important words that we need to define at this time. I'm going to let Webster define these words for us. First of all, when it comes to studying the Bible, you need to know what text means. It's the actual words of an author as distinguished from notes, etc., that someone has written. I had an instructor that constantly was reminding us by saying this to us in preaching school. He would say, don't quote me from your notes. And of course, I was thinking, why not? 
You said it. Why can't I quote it? Well, that shows how little I knew. After being out of school for several years, I'm very cautious when people start quoting me from their notes. Because sometimes what they think I said is not what I really said. Or what they thought I meant is not exactly what I meant. And so context, the actual words of an author. Now, another word, uh, that's text. Context is defined as the parts just before and after a passage that determines its meaning. Quite often we have heard and we have also said to others, be sure and read the verses above and the verses below the passages that we use. Why do you do that? To make sure you're using that passage in its proper context. One of the best things, one of the main things that Brother Moser taught me in preaching school, and he was probably not my favorite of all teachers, but he is also the one that said, do not quote me from your notes. But he taught me to study the context. I didn't really know anything about studying context. I'd only learned how to take a verse and use it the way it appeared, just that verse. I didn't realize so much so that you had better use that passage. If you use it in other places, you have to use it in the same way you found it in its context. There are a lot of things that are said in Scripture that I would sometimes just love to yank out of the context and beat someone over the head with it. But you can't do that. You know what happened to me? I found myself having to tear up a lot of my old sermon outlines that I preached before I went to preaching school. Why? Because I had used a lot of verses out of context. I didn't know any better. I used them exactly the way the preachers and teachers taught me to use those passages. And so the third word we need to have defined for us is pretext. Now, pretext is defined as a false reason put forth to hide the real reason. Pretext. Know what text means, know what context means, know what pretext means. And in this book that I'm talking about, Ascertaining Biblical Authority, I'm sure all of this will be in that book somewhere because this is of great importance. Now, a text lifted out of its context becomes a pretext. Suppose I said to you, I have spent some of the best years of my life in the arms of another man's wife. If I left it like that, some of you may leave out of here and there's no telling what you may be thinking in your minds. But I'm talking about my mother. But you could lift that out of its context and you see where that could go. But it would be a pretext. That's not what I said. The one that I was talking about was my mother, and that's quite okay. So you see the danger of that. This is something that we see all the time in the political arena. 
It's constantly happening day after day after day after day. President Trump can't say hardly anything without it being lifted out of its context. But it's not just with him. It just goes on all the time. And this has caused much division in the religious world and even in the Lord's church. This morning, we will look at a few verses that have been used out of context to teach things they do not teach. Tonight, we will continue the message, if the Lord wills, and we will look at a few more verses that I think at this present time are extremely important for us to stay on the straight and narrow and not be deceived by others in the church who are actually going to the scripture and lifting them out of their context to justify things that they are doing in the church today. The first one I'm going to use is a very obvious one, but it's been misused for years and years and years, and you can imagine which one it is. Several years ago, I was uh, having a youth devo, and I asked the young teenagers, I said, what is your favorite passage in the whole Bible? Just, what, just name one of them. And immediately, one young lady who was a very rebellious young lady and very, not very good person, she quoted out, she quoted out Matthew 7, 1. Well, the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. And I was thinking in my mind, why in the world would someone say, this is my favorite passage, judge not that you be not judged. Out of all the wonderful passages, John 3, 16, you could just go on and on and on with so many wonderful passages. This young girl said, judge not that you be not judged, just like that. Well, I think I know why, as I got to know the young lady, that she, that would be one of her favorite passages that she would know. Several years ago, a, a brother by the name of Daryl Conley made a statement on this passage that I think is just outstanding, and so I want to read it to you. Daryl Con Conley said, There is one passage of Scripture that is known by every reprobate enemy of Christianity. They may know nothing else of the Bible, but be assured they know this one. Judge not that you be not judged, Matthew 7, 1. It is used as a weapon by the worldly, the lukewarm, troublemakers, unbelievers, and false teachers in an attempt to disarm faithful children of God. We are told that condemning sin is judging, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting is judging, preaching and practicing the Bible doctrine of separation from the world is judging, refusal to bid God speed to false teachers is judging, attempts to obey Bible teachings on church discipline are branded as the most shameful judgment of all. That's why we hear members of the church say on a regular basis, I'm not judging now. I, I don't judge. You know why you say that? Because of this very reason. Because people have lifted this verse out of its context to try to shut your mouth where you will not stand up against sin and things that are not right and pleasing in God's sight. If you say anything like that at all to correct anyone or any teaching, then all of a sudden you're judging, and the Bible says judge not. You see the danger of that? 
Listen, if all judging is wrong, that means we cannot obey the Lord. Because in the same chapter, in the same uh, book, in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. Now, how in the world can I know who a dog is and who's a swine if I can't judge? He's talking about people. He's not talking about animals. And also, if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 7, when you get to verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets, which shall come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. In verse 20 he says, Wherefore, by their fruit ye shall know them. Now, how can I know a false teacher who comes in looking as though he's a sheep when actually he's a wolf without judging? You have to judge good people. You have to make judgments. I believe as Marshall Keeble said, he was a fruit inspector. Because the Bible said, you shall know them by their fruit. Now how are you going to know good fruit from bad fruit if you don't inspect it? It's not that we're passing judgment as far as we are condemning a person to hell, passing their sentence upon them. We can't do that. We don't have the right to do that. But we are commanded to judge between good and evil, right and wrong. John 7, verse 24, you've got Jesus saying, judge not according to the appearance, but rather judge righteous judgment. You need to mark that in your Bible if you haven't already. Because, see, if those people that say you cannot judge because Jesus said do not judge, then that means all judging, then now we've got a contradiction because in John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, judge righteous judgment. Well, you can see what's going on. People have lifted that verse out of its context. Now let's go to the context for just a minute. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Here's your context. And you want to interpret verse 1 in its context. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considered not the beam that is in thine own eye? What's he talking about? Here's a person that's got a log in his eye, and he's trying to get a little splinter out of his brother's eye. Problem. Or, uh, let's see, verse three, uh, 4. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Here it is, thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then, thou, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. What's he talking about? He's talking about a particular kind of judging. He's talking about hypocritical judging. Harsh, unkind, hypocritical judging. He's not talking about all judging. You've got to leave what Jesus said in its context. He's talking about a particular kind of judging, hypocritical judging. Now, when you lift that out of its context and you say, well, he's saying don't judge at all, now you've made a pretext. That's not what Jesus said. Hypocritical judging, negative. Do not judge that way, but you judge righteous judgment. Okay, so there's a simple example of how people do this. 
Now, let's look at another one. Hebrews 10, 25. Here the Bible says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's been a lot of discussion about the day that is mentioned in Hebrews 10, 25. Now, this may not be a salvation issue, okay? But I just want to show you how context helps you to understand words, the meaning of the passage. All right, so this day is thought by some to be the last day, the day when Jesus returns and we meet him in the air and he's going to judge the world, the end of time. That's the day, the last and final day. But notice what's said in the passage, first of all. He says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. When was this written? It was written before A.D. 70. Now notice, this cannot be right. In other words, it cannot be the second coming of Jesus because they could not see that day approaching. Doesn't the Bible teach that even Jesus does not know when he's coming again? Mark chapter 13, verse 35. But of the day, of that day and that hour, knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So the angels don't know when Jesus is coming again. Jesus does not know when he's coming again. Only God the Father knows. So these Christians that were receiving this letter could not have seen the day of Jesus' return approaching. We can't even see it today. We don't know if he's going to come today, or we don't know if he's going to come 10,000 years from now or a million years. We don't know. We can't see it coming. You know why? Because Jesus taught in Matthew 24, verse 36 and following, that there will be no signs before his coming, that it will be just like it was in the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and before they know it, before they knew it, the flood came. They had no signs. And so it will be when the Lord comes again. So when I see that, I look at the context, I realize, first of all, that that cannot be right. It can't be talking about when the Lord returns to judge the world. The day is thought by some to be Sunday. Brother Harold Littrell, in his uh, translation of the New Testament, on this passage, he has his little, his little, uh, little side notes, uh, what different things mean in there. It's a very good translation, actually. And he's a member of the church. This is what he says. The day, the first day of the week on which the saints assembled for the Lord's Supper and to continue in doctrine, fellowship, and in prayer, Acts chapter 2, 42, Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. So he says it's Sunday. And so they're being told to exhort one another and so much the more as you see Sunday approaching. Well, that could very well be true. I mean, that, that would line up to some degree. I, I, I wouldn't argue with that so much because as I see Sunday getting closer, I get a little excited about it. As a matter of fact, I do for Wednesday as well. And maybe even more so now than I did before. But, you know, Sunday's coming. I'm looking forward to being with y'all and assembling and worshiping. 
So that, that, that is possible. It could be the day. But when I look at the context of the book, and I see what's going on. The theme of the book is Jesus Christ, the better way. Better than Judaism. Just as Christ is greater than Moses, so is the law of Christ greater than the law of Moses. Well, what was the problem? The problem was this, and the purpose for the writing of the book. It was to keep the Hebrew Christians in face, uh, as they face severe persecution for being Christians faithful to Christ and to keep them from returning to Judaism. There were a lot of Christians at that day who were going back to Judaism. And so that's the context. They were leaving Christianity, going to Judaism. That's why I've mentioned several times that in the book of Hebrews, you'll find the word better mentioned 13 times because it's a contrast between the old law and the new law, between Moses and Christ, because they were leaving, just like the whole book of Galatians is written, because of Judaizing teachers, teaching that people had to be baptized but, and obey the gospel of Christ, but also had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So that was a major problem in the first century. And so with that in mind, I also think about the time when it was written. And so my personal persuasion on that, when I look at the whole book, the whole context, that the day that they saw approaching was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I would go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35, where they asked Jesus the, uh, those questions. And one was, when would the temple be destroyed? And you remember, Jesus gave them all those signs. And he said, when all you see all these things, know that it's near. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, which would be the army, the Roman army, gathered around the city, know that it's about to take place. And you read Josephus and other historians, and you'll read the uh, horrific destruction that came upon Jerusalem in AD 70. And so I think they're being warned uh, to exhort one another the much the more as you see the day approaching. If I see you tomorrow, I probably won't exhort you just a little bit because I see Sunday coming. You know, it would be kind of like, okay, so I've got, I think Brother Woods points this out, Guy in Woods. If I see you on Monday, I exhort you a little bit about Sunday. If I see you on Wednesday, I exhort you a little bit more about And then on Friday, a little bit more. And then when I see you on Sunday, I've got to really exhort you a lot. Because Sunday's almost here. I don't think that fits as well as exhorting one another as you see the destruction of Jerusalem approaching. How do I get that? I get that out of the context. Out of the context. Now, another one that we hear used quite often, quite often, lifted out of its context. We're hearing it a lot in these present days. It's Matthew, 28, uh, Matthew 18, verse 20. Matthew 18, verse 20. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. This is one of the ones that I used to use out of context. Because I heard everyone else doing it from the time I was a child till I went to the Memphis School of Preaching. And I ran into that hard-headed Brother Mosier. And he won this battle. Matthew 18. Now notice, it says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
This has been used and is being used presently to teach that anywhere two or three come together to worship, the Lord is there. In other words, it meets his approval. Now, since many have used this verse out of context, liberals take it and they are also using it to justify Sunday morning devotionals in their homes, at camping sites, in their vans on the side of the road, instead of worshiping with a congregation. Because where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am also. Well, is it true that you could worship with two or three? Of course. You can actually worship by yourself. You probably do it during the week. You pray, you sing, during the week, of course you do. Those are all items of worship. But see, this is lifting this verse totally out of its context. Totally. That's why many today are saying, I don't have to assemble with the church because the Bible says if two or three are gathered together in my name, I approve of it. But there's a little problem with that. See, here's the problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. The Bible still says, When you come together, therefore, in one place. The church has been commanded to assemble together in one place on the Lord's day to worship God. Another verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place. You see, this is a public assembly. It's a public gathering together in one place for the purpose of worshiping God. That's why we studied in our Bible class this morning in Acts chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, take the Lord's Supper, Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech into midnight. Now, don't misunderstand me here. If you are sick, you can be at home. We've mentioned in several lessons lately, there are exceptions to the rule. This is the rule. If you're healthy and you can be here, you're commanded to be here. Uh, if you're taking care of someone that's sick, you're not commanded to be here. If you're sick, you're not commanded to be here. And by all means, during this time that we're going through, if you have a fever, if you feel like you're getting sick, if you've been around someone that's had COVID-19, do not come. Worship at home. That's okay. That's an exception, okay? What I'm showing you is, we can't take this verse, Matthew 18, 20, out of its context and, justi and justify you, the ones of you that are healthy and you're not at any high risk, you're not having a fever, you're not feeling sick, you haven't been taking care of someone that's sick, for you to stay home this morning. And I'll tell you something else. A lot of excuses were taken away from people when churches started assembling in the parking lot in their vehicles. Because they could do that and obey God, man's law, also obey God's law, and still remain safe from the virus. 
But I'm sure there were others that still thought, well, the Bible says with two or three gathered together in my name, there I am also, so I'm excused. Let's look at the context for a second. Matthew chapter 18. The context, verse 15 through verse 20. Notice what's being taught here. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. What's he talking about here? He's talking about a personal offense. In other words, if someone sins against you, if a, if a member of the church sins against you, Jesus says, this is what you do. You go to that brother and you tell that brother or that sister, you have sinned against me. And point it out. That's what the context is all about. It's talking about how to deal with this matter where a brother sins against another brother. It's private. It's not public. It's personal. It's between two people. Notice. Notice what the instructions are. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. In other words, if he, he hears you and he repents, guess what? Fellowship's restored. It doesn't need to go any further. No one needs to know about the matter. You should have not told someone else before you went to the brother. The Bible says you go to the one that's offended you first before anyone else knows about it. Then, when that person repents, no one ever knows about it but the two of you and God in heaven above. Doesn't that sound like a good way to handle this matter? Instead of all that talk, 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 all over the place, tell everybody what somebody's done, and then finally go to that person, and then once that person repents, then you go tell everybody, or else you don't, the person doesn't repent, and then you go tell everybody. That sounds like trouble in the church, doesn't it? Notice what he says in verse 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee, watch this, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So you go to that person that sinned against you, and you take a witness or two. Now listen, don't go around through the church building saying, hey, this is what so-and-so did and find out what they think on it, and then say, okay, I'll take you. No, you don't agree with me. I won't take you. I'll take... You don't do that. You go find two wise people in the church that you have confidence in them knowing the Word of God and not showing favoritism. Because you may be the one in the wrong, not the one that you think is in the wrong. And so you go and you get you two wise members of the church and you say, I need you to go meet with a brother with me. You take them, and then in their presence, you make it known to them, with the one standing there that you think is guilty, what has happened. The witnesses can also encourage the offender to repent. Notice, if that happens, look, verse 16 but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, uh, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, the witnesses, tell it unto the church. 
You see your witnesses? You see your two or three? Now, if that doesn't work, then it goes before the congregation. And then, but if he neglect to hear the, uh, hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So the person is to be disciplined when the church cannot restore this person and have this person repent of his sins against an individual. Now, let me say this right here. This is not talking about all sorts of sins. If someone's a false teacher, how do you handle that? You mark and avoid? A person's a heretic. First or second admonition, reject. There are those that are weak members that sin. What do you do? You give them some time. But if one's guilty of gross immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, when you come together the next time, deliver this person unto Satan. So you don't play with that. So you've got to look at the sin and put it in its proper category and go to the passage where the Bible teaches you how to deal with those type sins. This is only when it comes to a personal offense where one brother sins against another brother. Now, he doesn't hear the church, so the church, the, we count him as a heathen and a publican. Verily, look at verse 18. Keep all that in mind now because that's the context. Verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you, wouldn't that go back to your witnesses? If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Could, could you imagine where that somehow maybe could be praying for the one that's been restored? Would that fit in there? This is all the same context. Now, here's verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Is that talking about Sunday morning worship? Is that talking about worship at all? That has nothing at all to do with worship. It has to do with restoring a brother that has sinned against another brother. That's the context. For years, for years and years and years, we have been lifting that verse totally out of its context, making a pretext out of it. As the Bible says, you reap to the wind, you, you uh, sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Now do you understand why when, when members are forsaking the assembly and they're out here on the beach somewhere and they're, they're doing their little devo, or when they're out on the lake camping out and they do their little devo, and when the elders go to them and say, look, you forsaken the assembling of the saints. And Hebrews 10, 25 says not to do that or you're in, you're in danger. They'll say, well, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am also. Now what are you going to do with that, Wayne? Where are you going to go from there? <laughs> it's wrong. They're using the verse out of context. And you know what they're doing right now with virtual worship? The very same thing. They're still going to that verse. They're still using out of context. And they're saying, look, I don't have to assemble with the church because of this virus is going on. And I would say that's true of some in some places. But for most, it's not the case. So I can stay home and I can worship on a computer. I don't have to assemble with the congregation because at least I'm still worshiping. Well, they could still be worshiping, but they're not assembling. 
You see, our brethren have missed something here that's a, it's extremely important. This is what everyone is saying to me that I am approaching on this matter. They're saying our elders have not stopped us from worshiping. We are still worshiping. If our elders say you can't worship, then we've got a problem. It's true the elderships are not saying that you can't worship. But what they're saying is you can't assemble together with the church. Go home and worship on your own. Worship virtually. Or do like the patriarch, just worship with your family. Here's the problem. God has given us a command to assemble on the first day of the week. The whole church together in one place. The whole church would mean all that can be there. there as we've mentioned, there's exceptions. There's reasons why people can't assemble. But all those that can are commanded to assemble on the first day of the week. Now, to assemble on the first day of the week is just as much a command as being baptized for the remission of your sins. If not, why not? It's a command or it's not a command. Listen, if it's not a command, we don't ever have to assemble together in one place. You know what a lot of them are thinking now? They're actually thinking that the reason why we assemble on the first day of the week is because the elders command us to. The elders have no say-so on whether we assemble on the first day of the week or not. God's already spoken on that matter. Now, whether we assemble twice on Sunday, the elders have something to do with that. Whether we meet at 10 or we meet at 11, the elders have everything to do with that. Whether we come back on Wednesday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, whether we have gospel meetings, that's all decisions that the elders have, that they make, and they have authority to do so. But when it comes to us assembling on the first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper, to hear the Word of God proclaimed, to, say, to pray one for another, to sing and teach, exhort, admonish one another through song. You have to be together to do that. You can't admonish me if you're singing to your computer. It won't work. I don't even hear you singing. God has commanded us to assemble together on the first day of the week. How dare we let anyone detour us, stop us, from assembling on the first day of the week. It's a command. And we're told in Hebrews 10, 25, that we are not to forsake it. But yet today, people even go so far as to say, well, that's not what Hebrews 10, 25 is talking about. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I am extremely disturbed I am very upset. I feel probably a lot like Paul, and you should as well if you know what the brotherhood is doing right now. And the saddest thing to me of it all is that people that I have great confidence in and have had for many years are now lifting Scripture out of its context to justify the church not assembling together on the first day of the week. Men that know better, they've taught better, 
And, and some of them are so happy now because they are assembling today. Some for the very first time. But this is what they're doing. They're having this side of the building meet at one time and this side to meet at another time. And for years we've taught against divided assembly. And now it's just wonderful. They're divided. It's still divided assembly. So, Wayne, what are you going to do if some of us decide, well, I think we'll just go over here and meet at my house instead of meeting with the congregation. And we'll just have us a little cell group over here. And Brother Jimmy will take a few and he'll have a little cell group at his house. And then the ones of you that want to can just assemble here. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to handle it? Look, if, I, if we can divide today, if the elders can say, okay, today uh, at 10 o'clock, everybody that, I'm going to say on my right-hand side, every, all the people that sit on my right-hand side can come at 10 o'clock. The rest of y'all, y'all can't come to that assembly, but y'all can come to the one at 2 o'clock, the ones on the left-hand side. But the ones on the right-hand side can't come at 2 o'clock, and the ones on the left-hand side can't come at 10 o'clock. That's divided assembly. We've been teaching against that for years. You might as well go back to having children's church. Why not? What's the difference? Take all the children out of the worship assembly and let them have a junior worship assembly. Is that okay? One's okay, the other's okay. You see the trouble we get ourselves into when we lift a verse out of its context and make it say something that it does not say in its context? You open your eyes and you open your ears and you look at what the brotherhood's doing right now, it is absolutely unbelievable. And it's led by older men who should be the stronger men in the church, elders in the church, who are telling members, stay home. Do not assemble. And in many cases, it's just like in our case, we, don't, we do not personally know people that's got the virus. We haven't got the virus. It hadn't been in the congregation. But yet elders, leaders of the church are saying, stay home, stay home, stay home. Don't assemble, don't assemble, don't assemble. But yet at the same time, you're going to work during the week. You go to Walmart during the week. You go to the doctor's office. There, of all places, the doctor's office? Where's the consistency in all this? You see, when we leave the truth, we become inconsistent. That's, all, that's the only way it can be. Truth is always consistent. You stay with God's Word and you'll always be consistent. Now, should we use great caution? Yes, indeed. Great caution. Great caution. But do not be so cautious that you start lifting Scripture out of its context to justi justify not obeying God. Many today are resting the Scriptures to their own destruction. May God help us to never be guilty of doing that. And if we do,
May God give us the strength to make corrections. You look at those verses that we use. You be sure you read above and you read it below. And you leave them in their context. And if you use them anywhere, you've got to use them with the same meaning that they meant in their original context. How would you like it if people were taking things that you say from day to day out of their context and use them to say that you meant something that you didn't really mean when you said those words. You wouldn't like it, would you? You wouldn't tolerate it. But yet the Holy Spirit is supposed to be okay with it? Oh no. It will cause us to lose our souls. And so, we'll continue with a few more verses that I hear I've uh, been hearing used out of context to justify not assembling on the Lord's Day, Lord willing, tonight. And then it may just be that next Sunday I may talk about another thing that's going on in the Brotherhood, and that is there are those out there, I mean, giants in the Brotherhood, who are actually using biblical principles, but they're misapplying them. Good biblical principles, but they're misapplying them. That's also wrong. You don't lift the verse out of its context and use it in a way other than what it meant in the context. And you don't take a biblical principle and misapply it. I can show you how that's being done and you would not believe it. And so I say all these things to warn you, to let you know the crisis that's going on now is far greater than COVID-19. The crisis we've got going on is spiritual and it's in the church. And it is a result of how COVID-19 is being treated by the federal government, uh, by CDC and others. And that's what's created the panic that's caused so many leaders of the church to have such great fear that now they've made a move that is unscriptural. And so the preachers have to rest scripture to justify what they're doing that's not scriptural or else they'll lose their jobs. Because, you know, you've got to agree with the eldership. Paul said, Be ye therefore followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. As long as people follow Christ, we can follow them. But when they stop following Christ, we stop following them. Matters not who it is. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We encourage you to follow all those that have gone before you and becoming Christians. The Bible is very plain. However, people still try to change what God said, but it's not difficult, but you can still risk scriptures on the plan of salvation to your own destruction. And look at the religious world today. Is that not what they're doing? Have they not twisted the scripture to say things like once saved, always saved? All you have to do is believe to be saved. You can sprinkle babies because they've got inherited sin. That's what all that is. But the church is not known for doing that. And nor will we do it today. You must do the very same thing that all those examples that we find in the book of Acts, all those people that obeyed the gospel, every one of them had to do the same thing. 
They had to hear the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Without that, there is no faith. You've got to believe, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. You must repent of all your sins, Luke 13, 3. You must confess him before men to be the Son of God, as did the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verse 37.